And good afternoon. It's four o'clock. Uh, thanks for tuning in to uh, CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located here in Lower, Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, and this is Finding a Voice, spoken word programming here every after, Friday afternoon uh, from 4 to 6 o'clock. We do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up on the show today, in the first hour from a November 7th book launch reading event held at Novel Idea, you'll hear a talk by Sean M. Maloney as he launched his new book, Operation Kinetic, Stabilizing Kosovo. Following that, from an October 16th uh, launch again at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear a reading by Sergio Sismondo as he launched his new book, Ghost Managed Medicine. Uh, the reading and talk uh, from that event will run slightly into the second hour, I think, today. In the second hour then, and following that, uh, from a November 10th launch event held again at Novel Idea Bookstore, you'll hear readings by Paul Carlucci with his new book, The High Rise in Fort Fierce, and Ian Weir with his The Death and Life of Struther Purcell. Uh, I've still got several book launches from fall that I'm trying, uh, and a number of readings from fall, trying to work them in. We'll weave them in uh, here into January and probably February as well. So patience for those who had a book launch. It was just a very busy season. So I guess this the first thing I usually do, the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some uh, poetry, spoken word, or, or music played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. Uh, I should have a bit of time at the end of the second hour. In fact, I know I will at the end of the second hour today. Uh, there are a lot of calls for submissions that are quickly expiring, so I want to uh, bring you up to speed on those. And there are some, a few upcoming events already into the first of the year, so I want to mention those as well. So tell you what, let's just dive into it up first from a November 7th book launch reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore. Uh, you'll hear, I believe, I don't remember him reading from the book. I think it was mostly just a talk uh, by Sean M. Maloney as he launched his new book, Operation Kinetic, Stabilizing Kosovo. And I believe he's introduced by Oscar, an owner of this bookstore. But here is Sean M. Maloney. Thank you very much for coming, and uh, it's been a real pleasure for us because Sean has been a great friend to the store, and it's been wonderful that a book has come out, <laughs> and I'm looking forward to future books. Right on. Um, so uh, we are actually open until 9, so there's no rush after this. Uh, there'll be more drink and food, and so please help yourselves. And in the meantime... I think it's uh, up to us to listen to Sean. All right, thanks. thanks. Some of them are paid to already, so. <laughs> okay, let me go back to last week just to situate all of this. I wound up with a phone call uh, from a prominent media outlet in Canada, and they said they wanted to talk to me, interview me about the Medak pocket operation. This is an operation that occurred in Croatia back in 1993. I said, okay, no problem. I've already done a book that deals with that. I said, but it's the 20th anniversary of Kosovo. The person on the other end of the line said, what's that? 
And that was kind of shocking. And I said, how much time have you got for me to explain this to you? Uh, 35 minutes? I said, well, it's not going to work out too well. <laughs> this was rather shocking because at the time, in 1998, when our operations kicked off there, uh, the world's attention was focused on what was happening in the Balkans. Okay? The 90s had been, had been deadly and had been disastrous in many ways. We had gone through a variety of missions already as Yugoslavia had broken up. We dealt with Somalia. We dealt with uh, Rwanda. Cambodia was happening. All of these things were happening at the same time. And our country and our armed forces struggled to keep up with it. And, and we were constantly be, had our people being deployed. And things had gone disastrously wrong in many places. However, we learned from this. And there's a whole bunch of factors why we got involved in Kosovo, but the main one was is that everybody was sick and tired of ethnic cleansing and ethnic violence in the Balkans. We'd already helped stabilize uh, Bosnia, to a lesser extent uh, Croatia, and simply put, after five years of trying to keep that stabilized, there was no way in hell we are just going to sit back and allow this to happen again. Not when it was so blatantly obvious what was going on. So... I come into this to a certain extent the way this book came to be. There had been this small observer mission in the Balkans called the European Community Monitor Mission. It was essentially our first observer mission before the UN really got involved. It had Canadians in it, uh, Dutch, Americans, Brits, a real melange of people. Some of them had worked for me when I was the four brigade historian in Germany, and they were telling me all the stories about what they were doing. I was recording everything and keeping track of the Operation Bolster, as we called it. And I wrote a sh very short history on that, and I had that available for people that were wanted to learn more about operating in the Balkans. Well, all of a sudden, the now General Michel Maisonneuve gets hold of me and says, I hear you have a short history of the ECMM. I said, yep. I said, can I read it? I said, absolutely. What for? Well, we're going to set something like that up for Kosovo. I said, okay, the deal is I give that to you. I get to go and watch. <laughs> okay, so done. He talked to Mark Caron, who was the, one of the commanders at the time, and that we were working on that. Well, what had happened here in, in, in Kosovo is essentially a, pro, it's a province of Serbia. It, it will become a separate independent country later, much later on. But in this case, there have been ethnic matrix woven under the Tito years to make sure that there were no more nationalisms and that, that Yugoslavia would ostensibly be a singular entity, that there would be no Kosovo or Albanians, there would be no Serbs, etc. But in this case, the ethnic matrix essentially imported uh, Albanians into the region, ethnic Albanians in the region, that had been essentially the cradle of uh, Serbian culture, mostly religious, uh, partially historical, and so there was an imbalance in that area, and that was deliberately done under the Tito regime. Well, as Yugoslavia breaks up into pieces, this becomes one of the question marks, because it's under such Serbia, Serbian domination, it's not clear what's going to happen to it. The Milosevic regime had used it as a tool to, work, uh, to pump up Serb nationalism throughout the region. So it had been a flashpoint going back to 1988, and it was just sitting there smoldering away. It was only a question of time when it was going to blow into the open. And then once things had calmed down elsewhere in the Balkans, then that smoldering breaks out. There's a whole bunch of reasons behind that, which I get into in the book. What ultimately will happen is there'll be an insurgency will kick in uh, by the Ucheka, or the Kosovo Liberation Army. Okay? And 
the collapse of Albania next door due to a Ponzi scheme in its economy releases onto the market about 2 million AK-47s. And most of those wind up in Kosovo. People start organizing. And there are a lot of people that are rather ticked off about the way they're being treated by the security apparatus. And the security apparatus responds negatively, as you can imagine. So this breaks out. It starts off as a the Elidze Cafe group of people sitting in the functional equivalent of Starbucks in Pristina. And then eventually it works its way into the remoter parts of the country. And they've got clan-based insurgencies all over the place. The Serbian government responds with disproportionate force. And it's not just police. It's not just the army. They bring in essentially uh, irregular groups that are uh, made up of people released from prison, football supporter organizations, ultra-nationalists, and these guys are brought in to do the dirty work. So you wind up with a whole, uh, whole different group of people that show up that this is no longer straight-up policing and it's no longer straight-up counterinsurgency. Massacres start taking place during this period. Now, at this point, the Kosovo diplomatic observer mission, which is a handful of diplomats, were raided to go in on the ground and see what was going on, and then that was augmented with the Kosovo Verification Mission. And that was a multinational group, Canada included, and its job was to act as a conscience. Be the eyes and ears of the international community, and if anything gets out of control, report it. And that's essentially what happens. There's a series of massacres that take place. The problem was, um, in other parts of the Balkans, some massacres have been perpetrated uh, by the people that ostensibly were the targets for CNN. And this had happened in Sarajevo. So any massacre that took place had to be carefully examined to see exactly what was happening, what the motives were. And Mezinov and crew determined that one of them, at Radchak, was in fact a straight-up massacre of civilians. That triggers off an air campaign. And the bombing starts to try and, and, and force the Serbian security forces to cease and desist. Then it escalates into... Uh, going after the regime itself uh, and hitting the economic underpinnings of that. At the same time, there's a buildup of ground forces led by NATO in neighboring Macedonia, and the plan is to do a forced entry into the province and force the Serb security forces out and then reestablish order in the province. What winds up happening is the Milosevic regime will cave in once they're confronted with a serious potential ground assault, plus the air campaign, plus international pressure. But their only ally are the Russians, who are interfering as much as they can with the operations. They've got ships in the Adriatic that are jamming. They're using radar. They're inter they've got spies that are feeding air tasking orders to, uh, to Serbia so they can shoot down NATO aircraft. It's a whole game that goes on there. Anyway, the Serbs under Milosevic decide, okay, they can't resist, and they make a deal called the Military Technical Arrangement. That's a phased withdrawal of forces outside out of Kosovo. So, just when you think everything's going to get dull and boring and go back to uh, peace, a number of other things happen. The problem we've got here is that Kosovo Force is set up as a, as a war-fighting organization to uh, kinetically kick, kick the Serbian security forces out. It now has to downshift into a stabilization operation like in Bosnia. And that means taking the force they've got there and altering what it's, it's got, it has a particular composition, it alters to, to address the situation, which when it gets on the ground is very complex. And the fact that our people are very flexible, uh, we're relatively agile, uh, are able to pull this off. Now, the real kicker here, which nobody anticipated, 
when the NATO forces start moving into Kosovo, the Russians send a force through Serbia in to grab the airfield outside of Pristina. Very large airfield, a lot of underground bunkers. At the same time, they send four nuclear bombers and skirt the air defense identification zone for NORAD. Two Tupolev uh, blackjacks and two bear foxtrots. Very clear signal. They hadn't done that since the Cold War. So seven years of relatively in, relative inactivity in NORAD. We got four nuclear bombers for a total of probably 12 cruise, nuclear cruise missiles per aircraft sitting right off our airspace. This was a shock, shall we say. Why are they willing to do that over Kosovo? And that's never been fully answered. That's, that, it doesn't really give us pause. The Canadian Reconnaissance Squadron gets on the ground, and they, they wind up in the Mexican standoff with the Russian forces at the airfield. No shots are fired. But at night, they put their cameras up and observe all the stuff that's going on. There's a lot of transport aircraft loading up things. We can't tell what they are, and headed back to Russia. So that's a, that remains a bit of a mystery. It sort of sits in the background of the book. Uh, but uh, from then on in, the Russians have the airfield. We have to do business with them. They're right next to the Canadian sector, and that gets very interesting. So the way operations evolved in the province, it, it unfolded unlike anything else. And the problems our people encountered, which are all detailed in here, um, were variants on a theme from the Balkans as well, but there were some new ones. We get on the ground expecting a situation where you've got the Kosovo Albanians and the Kosovo Serbs at each other's throats. That's natural in that situation. We find out that there's actually a third entity there, the Roma. And the Roma weren't exactly neutral either. They had, in many cases, sided with the Serbs, and that was payback from the Albanian side. So you wound up having, it's not quite like Bosnia, but you've got... You got uh, towns and villages where the where they're split three ways or two ways, and our people had to identify those and address them. Um, and then, of course, once you've taken down the security forces, how do you police the place? That hadn't been thought through, and that's the problem we'll deal with in Afghanistan. So, the uh, Canadian troops on the ground essentially try to figure out how they're going to uh, how to how they're going to handle law and order, and it, and then of course if you arrest somebody and send them to prison, well the prison's essentially a Serbian torture chamber, so you can't do that. And then what law are you going to implement? Law from Belgrade, law from the 18th century. So you have this whole series of problems our people had to adjust to. And that, that the story, most of the stories in here are about making that adjustment. Well, at the same time, being prepared for a Serbian mechanized incursion. So our people still have to operate or think on two levels. What if they come back in? How do you defeat them? Is it like four brigade in Germany in the old days with Aethazars and the tanks up front and the border? <laughs> so in this case, this is Strath Strathcona's, but, you know, can't, can't be perfect. Uh, and in this case, too, we also have this Russian contingent. You're not sure it's in behind it. What's it going to do if, if that takes place? There's a lot of uncertainty taking place. And then our helicopters start getting lased. The laser beams are pointed at them, and their warning systems go off, firing flares, and nobody can figure out what's going on. And then it turns out somebody's distributing little pen lasers to children all over Pristina and telling them to point them at the helicopters obviously trying to get, and of course, if your helicopters are lazy, it's a hostile act, you can shoot back. Somebody's trying to generate a situation where we try, where they get us to kill people, uh, children. So again, our people really hadn't dealt with this sort of uh, 
this kind of environment all at once. And so the story is about the adjustment and handling that and handling it with a level of alacrity and flexibility. And I've interviewed probably about 250 people for it. I did a nice cross-section interview of each unit and subunit so you'd be able to, to get a slice of what was going on there. And finally, after a, bit, uh, after a year, we will withdraw and consolidate elsewhere in the Balkans. But for that period, that very crucial period, we helped stabilize this place. Now, it didn't always turn out afterwards when we left the way we wanted it to, but at least they're not, they're, they have not reverted back to that level of violence since, and that's 20 years ago. They've had a spike around in 2006, but now they talk. They don't slit each other's throats. And that's, that's, the, that's the success that I depict in the book. And uh, I think it's something that Canadians need to be proud of if they know about it. And they generally don't know about it, which is most unfortunate. That's, again, one of the reasons I decided to do this. It's also the prelude to our involvement in Afghanistan. Lessons learned, lessons unlearned, lessons forgotten, slightly different situation, <laughs> dramatically different situation in some cases. But you'll see people in here that wind up leading in Afghanistan as very junior officers here and then more senior later on. So um, you can't take that Kosovo out of the trajectory of the Canadian forces and the Canadian army for this period. And I want to emphasize again, after the setbacks and the violence and the death of the 1990s, to have a success was astounding. Psychologically, it's very important. And to be able to stand up to the Milosevic regime, which was incredibly odious, and eventually his regime will collapse the following year through a variety of measures. But in my view, his failure to achieve success in Kosovo is absolutely crucial, uh, absolute essential element of that collapse. We can argue about that for the next 30 years if we need to. But anyway, I hope uh, you've enjoyed this, and thanks for coming to this. And the book will take you places and show you things you've probably never heard of. And I wish more Canadians knew about it. Thanks very much. Sure, I can do that. Where are my students? Do you guys have any questions? Uh, <laughs> Mr. McElhinney. Uh, Michelle Mason, is that the retired lieutenant general that just also was the principal for uh, yep. CMR St. Joe? Yep. Oh, okay. We have all the dirt on him. <laughs> Not a, not a question, Sean, but um, a comment. I, I teach uh, at the NATO Defense College in Rome, and I teach with a bunch of international relations scholars who tend to think of each of these episodes as independent in and of itself. So Bosnia was an episode that had nothing to do with Kosovo. Kosovo had nothing to do with Afghanistan. Afghanistan had nothing to do with Libya. Well, that's natural given their discipline. the way that you connect these things in all of your research and writing. I think that's the strength of the book. Well, Ian, I'm glad you put that out there because there's a, there's a, there are relationships. Once things start happening in Kosovo, Bosnia starts to get activated. And the question becomes, what happens if Bosnia blows up while we're trying to do Kosovo? And what's happening in, in, uh, in Croatia? You know, I mean, it's, it, it, you can't delink this let alone what's happening in Italy. This affects Italy. This affects Albania. I mean, in Greece and so on and so forth. I mean, this is, I wouldn't say it's domino theory, but it, the, the interconnectedness of this is dramatic. And I don't, it's, it's, 
people want to view things in discrete chunks, and it's never that simple, in my view, and hasn't been. Uh, sir, do, do you believe that there's um, that there's any particular reason that uh, that, that Canadians tend to remember the Medak pocket much more than they remember the uh, operations in Kosovo? I think it's a it's a lack of exposure on Kosovo. I think Kosovo was downplayed because it happened in relative proximity to 9/11, and people sort of view Medak as the so-called secret battle. It wasn't secret to those of us that were sitting in, in LAR listening to it, or the guys that were on the ground doing it. And there was media coverage, but it's, it's this sort of mystique that's been brought up with that. Oh my God, it's something secret. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that went on in Bosnia at the same right afterwards that I'd love to write about someday that are equally surreal. But for some reason, the, the elements in the media have latched onto that, and they decontextualize it. You can't take Medak out of everything else that was going on. Um, and, I, and I'm not sure why that this is that uh, kinetics been forgotten. It was a fairly substantial operation. Plus the air, the air support to this, uh, the whole air campaign. I've yet to see a Canadian study on that. We had we had aircraft involved in that. Um, there's, there's there's endless things to write about in, about Canada, Canada's involvement in the Balkans. Major Gudzinski and other people I know we have attempted to try to interest people and get people to focus on this and say this is part of what we've been doing and we've, it's been, we've had mixed success at Best Tanya you know, and we don't know why I can only speculate this isn't, yep, so go ahead well, we're combating the Vimy syndrome we're combating the Vimy syndrome um, yeah. Sean, I had a question for you sorry, did I interrupt? no, go right in okay. um, the remarkable thing about this period is Although there were problems, there was a remarkable amount of unity between the Western Allies in achieving what they did in the Balkans, whether it was coordinating air campaigns, um, sending forces into the various parts of the Balkans, upscaling the mission, achieving the, um, the Dayton Accords, and so forth. Do you think we'd be capable of doing that today if there was a crisis, given the, the fracturing of Western Europe and, and American I, I I think that's questionable right now. I think we've got a significant problem there. At least in the Balkans, you can see the arc of what's going on. The failure of, of uh, OSCE, the UN involvement, and then eventually having to escalate to NATO to get things done, and then having that call in the question, and then you have to go in hard in, in Kosovo. I mean, you can see the sort of the arc of that. I'm not sure if that exists in the same way for a place like Latvia. Maybe it does, but it hasn't really been tested. What happens if it's tested? What happens when push comes to shove? I'd like to think so. But I've got concerns about that now, as an historian looking at all of this. You know, uh, in, the, in Afghanistan, to a certain extent, NATO became UN too, and so, in a to a certain extent. And there were problems with trying to coordinate strategy and, uh, and operations in that regard. Well... Uh, whether whether we've recovered from that, whether we've—I mean, we really need to relearn the lessons of the Cold War. But who's doing that right now? I mean, it's it's really bizarre to watch it and say, "Oh well, we had a structure to do that back in 1983. It doesn't exist anymore." Oh, we had an integrated means of uh, presenting a deterrent apparatus that doesn't exist anymore. And the other side's playing us like a fiddle. Again, sitting back as a historian watching it, it's it's truly amazing. And to see how slow we are on the uptake, because we, again we're back to that cliche of not learning the lessons of the past, which leads me to the question of can we learn the lessons of the past? 
institutionally. That we can have that debate too, but uh, it's an interesting problem that somebody should be writing about. <laughs> right, students? <laughs> so there isn't the other side, eh? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, just, just another question, because uh, funny enough, after after you came in and gave the presentation in uh, Madame um, Doucette, Doucette's class, yep. um, we went and kind of talked about the massacre in, in Kosovo, the 7,000 um, uh, Kosovo Muslims dead, and, and kind of like the expulsion, that how that kind of triggered a relatively large national, or sorry, international response. Yes. Op-Kinetic was going on at the same time, right? So, like... The, the expulsions take place right before Kinetic goes in. Okay, so, yeah, you, you've got... The population of the province is 1.9 million. 500,000 of those are internally displaced people, and then another million are displaced into ne neighboring countries, which destabilizes the entire region. I mean, it sort of puts the, the current refugee crisis in Europe in some perspective. I mean, imagine you're Albania, population of 3 million, you got 500,000 people show up on your door. What do you do? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it was uh, that, that humanitarian aspect of it. That's a whole other story that somebody needs to write a history of, because the way that was handled was actually very, very well done. I, but I guess it's not news when it works, right? <laughs> well, I, I, just kind of adding on to that, yep. it, was, it was just like, and adding on to your point as to why people don't know it. It's, it's. Do you, do you have any any idea as to why they would know it? Because if they have that much international pressure, again, you kind of go through that CNN well, news phase, and then I think you nobody covers it. I think you're right. That's part of it. But then, we're, what have we done within our own national identity, cultural industry, to talk about this? Everybody focuses on peacekeeping mythology, but nobody wants to look at this. This is NATO stabilization operations and offensive operations to kill for peace. And that, that disturbs some people. They'd rather, in my view, uh, would prefer the mythology to this. But this is the reality. And by the way, we're really good at it. And some people can't handle that. Some people don't want us to be that. And I think, so I think there's a national character factor here. I ran into this when I did some peacekeeping history a while back. Yeah, go ahead. I think there's another element that the CNN effect also creates, and that is you're going moment Good point. to moment. Kosovo hmm? happened in probably one of the worst timing if you're trying to celebrate something because 9-11's coming down the pipe, and the focus is moving out of the Balkans. Well, I'm glad you brought up the CNN effect. Because, I mean, it's yeah. a comment, why did Rwanda happen? It happened right after Somalia. No one was going to do anything after that screw-up. And they knew it. That was capitalized on. If you talk to Brent Beardsley, he'll tell you straight up. Your timing of when a problem comes up is usually almost as important as how do we handle this, what the solution is. Well, I actually... Oh, forget I, it. I don't want to be on TV right now. I address it in the foreword that I wrote for this, and it falls on to exactly what you're talking about. There are two groups of people that didn't care about the Balkans after 9-11. The first is Donald Rumsfeld's Pentagon, who doesn't want to hear it because it's nation-building. But then it's Osama bin Laden, because this runs against the Al-Qaeda narrative of having infidels save Muslims. That's intriguing. And it's, it's interesting to watch their discussion, or lack of discussion, of what's going on in Kosovo, because it does not fit their narrative. So you've got these two mutually opposed entities that are starting off on the war path after 9-11, and the Balkans are sort of just, no, we don't want to talk about that. It doesn't fit. So, but yeah, absolutely. Yep. So I was in one brigade when this was being launched, 
and uh, all of the classified intel said that the Serbs were going to fight. And we were staging up through Macedonia on that horrible mountain road. No, Kakanich defile. Yet, um, there was no fight, except for, as you mentioned, the Russians protecting the airport while the airplanes are going. And Paul Fleury did get there, but uh, why was the intel so wrong? I don't know. I, I don't address that aspect of it. <laughs> so then the following then would be uh, I saw Paul Flurry and the Coyote vehicle yeah. in the references there. Mm -hmm. So the story in one brigade is he took off. The Brits in five mech tucked him deeper into the line of march. They were Dale had tracks, he was on wheels with the coyote. And the minute he got some free space he sort of didn't sort of disobeyed orders and he took off. So that video you talked about that of the Russians flying out, that was him. Mm -hmm. And he was actually outside of the orders he was given. So is, that, is any of that sort of yep. chemistry and fun in there? I, if I recall, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. With a coyote vehicle, I mean, this is a, here's another case of where we... People use the term punch above our weight. I call it saliency. Here we have a system and crew. We have a capability nobody else has. And this is a very an eight-wheel armored vehicle with a sensor that can be put up on a, uh, on a basically hydraulic arm. And nobody had anything like this. The capability to uh, record things at night, to see everything at night. This system was amazing, and it wound up being in use across the entire province, which allowed us aspect to see into all sorts of aspects of the province, not just where, the, where we were stationed. So the book itself helps, because we were everywhere, it gives us a a view of everything that's going on, because our people are watching. I mean, there's all sorts of great anecdotes in there. Paul rolled his guys into the middle of a riot in a place called Lipion, and they put the mast up, and the thing starts looking around, and the riot stops, and everybody's staring at this thing that's moving around on top of the mast, because they don't know what it is. They don't know what it's going to do to them. <laughs> right? Like an alien with an eye stop? Yeah, pretty much. That's what it, that's, that's, in fact, that's how Paul described it, if I remember correctly. You know? So... Yeah, and uh, it was interesting. It's, it was very interesting talking to you. I wound up on the ground myself in 2001 um, when I was doing research for this. And uh, you see the ground and see what everybody else was doing and all that. And nobody had anything like Coyote. Once the Coyotes were gone, there was a huge gap in the capability of K4. And they, everybody said that when I, oh, you're Canadian. Why would you take the Coyotes? <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Hope you got something out of that. And you just heard Sean M. Maloney in, uh, I guess, from, is the right word, a November 7th book launch uh, reading event held at Novel Idea Bookstore in which he talked about uh, the situation leading into the book and the book itself, and then a Q&A after. And the book is called Operation Kinetic, Stabilizing Kosovo. Tell you what, uh, let's do this real quick, and I'll be right back. Friday evenings at 6 p.m. here on CFRC, listen to Saltwater Music, a show covering all musical genres from the East Coast of Canada. Celtic, of course, but also rock, jazz, blues, folk, and a lot more. 
I'm your host, Rob Carnell. Tune in to Saltwater Music Friday evening from 6 to 8 here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Or you can catch us on the web at www.cfrc.ca. And for our listeners out east, that's 7 p.m. Atlantic and 7.30 Newfoundland. Since 1922, CFRC Radio has been the canvassing and community radio station for Queens and Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is both listener-supported and listener-created radio, bringing both music and spoken word content to our community on 101.9 FM and around the world on cfrc.ca. Support locally created media. Learn more at cfrc.ca. Do you like waffles? Do you like waffles on a Saturday morning? Do you like things that are good and dislike things that are bad? Then you should listen to Waffles every Saturday morning on CFRC 101.9 FM from 8 a.m. until 10 a.m. Everybody likes waffles. I mean, if there's a listener-supported radio station, it means that people can get daily, every day, a different way of looking at the world, not just what the corporate media want you to see, but a different picture different understanding, a different picture, a different understanding. Not only can you hear it, but you can participate in it. You can add your own thoughts, you know, and you can learn something and so on. Well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way, uh, well, that's the way uh, people become uh, human, you know. That's the way you become human participants in a, in a social and political system. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. Uh, we are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. And we do stream live online as well at www.cfrc.ca. So coming up next, uh, from an October 16th uh, book launch, again, held at Novel Idea Bookstore. Uh, you'll hear a reading uh, by Sergio Sismondo as he launched his new book, uh, Ghost Managed Medicine. And as mentioned at the top of the hour, this uh, reading and talk uh, will run oh, a few minutes into the second hour. So here you go. Enjoy. Thank you all for coming. I mean, it's really, it's really heartening to see so many people here, including so many familiar faces. But um, so I want to say I, I'm not going to talk for a long time. That's a promise. <laughs> you know, I, I'll, I saved the long lectures for when I was doing Jamie Swift's class last week, etc., etc., etc. No, so I'm just going to. Um, I uh, I started this book. Actually, I started the research for this book a very long time ago. I started, um, I, I was interested in places at which pharmaceutical research and marketing co- collide, or where they, they come together, actually. <laughs> and I got started, um, I went to a conference um, of what was called, a group of people called publication planners. And publication planners are people who take data from the pharmaceutical industry and turn it into articles, which then get authored by medical professors, you know, people in medical schools. 
typically, although sometimes practic many practitioners as well. Um, and I knew about the practice a little bit before going to the conference, and then going to the conference just opened my eyes, and I sort of understood not only um, that this was a fascinating topic, but that, that was, it was a great method for learning about the topic, is to go to these conferences where people who are professionals are talking about the problems that they have and what they want to, you know, how, how they want to solve them and so on and so forth. They were telling stories um, over and over again, telling stories about the kinds of work that they do. So I branched out. I did, in addition to publication planning, I did sort of that I, I actually structured it in terms of a whole trajectory from clinical trials right through to the clinical trials, to the publications that come from the clinical trials, to the promotion of those publications via what are called key opinion leaders in the medical world, um, to then the taking of that information uh, to doctors' offices uh, through another route, the key opinion leaders take it to doctors' offices too, but through another route through sales representatives and also um, and also then sort of moving that information through patient advocacy organizations. So even patient advocacy organizations are places. And, I'm, and I was actually quite interested to see that, the, that there is, a, in a sense, a continuous story to be told throughout that process from the production through the distribution to the consumption of medical knowledge throughout that process the pharmaceutical industry has its hands in things all the time so the result is if you think you know something about an in-patent pharmaceutical product chances are that thing that you know has been touched by the industry or by a, a company um, at one time or another, has been touched, maybe shaped, maybe given its full form um, by a company at, at one time. Um, so, so I think you know this is a this is perhaps a chilling story. Hence the hence the <laughs> Halloweenish cover. And um, um, I think it's a story, and I think it's a, it's a novel story that I want to tell. I think it's a it's it's a story that that has not been told either in the academic literature or elsewhere. This book is not written for a specialist audience. I've done, I've written article, lots of articles on this material for specialist audiences. This book is intended for a broad group of people: um, philosophers, non-philosophers, academics, non-academics. I'm, I'm hoping that all sorts of people will, will read this book and find it interesting and useful. Um, I think that there are lessons uh, in it for. Uh, for philosophers and for sociologists and anthropologists, but also for everybody else. So I think that's important. Um, I have many people to thank. I'm not going to thank them here, um, especially since you know some of the people I was, some of the people I, I wanted to thank are, are not here. I'll, I'll thank <laughs> Kadia, who's read most most parts of this book and uh, commented on, on many parts uh, in, in particular, but uh, um, but there are lots of other people to thank as well. Um, one other thing I want to say about this book is it's a, it is unusual in one other respect um, for me um, and for many people. It's unusual 
for me in that it's a book for a non-specialist audience, but in one other respect it's unusual. The press, Mattering Press, publishes simultaneously books, paperbacks for sale, and I hope you all bought one, <laughs> um, but also uh, it publishes this as a downloadable PDF for free or for a donation if you choose uh, to make a donation to the press. So it's actually available open access and uh, you're also welcome to uh, read it that way or recommend it that way. If you've now bought a copy of the book and you think you like it, then um, then by all means you can recommend it either as, either to sell the book or just tell people, point people to the website of the press and they will be able to find it and download it. Of course, not everybody likes reading things on screen, but, um, but it is a possibility. Um, I'm going to read uh, just two pages uh, from the beginning of the chapter on patient advocacy organizations. Um, it's actually it's a self-contained story that doesn't really feature any of my close empirical work, but, I, but it is a nice self-contained story, and so for that reason I've chosen it. The chapter is called Sirens of Hope, Trolls of Fury. Yes, I play with the supernatural or the spectral theme throughout. <laughs> uh, and, and other Sirens of Hope, Trolls of Fury, and Other Vocal Creatures. And the section is called A Satisfying Encounter at the FDA. The year 2015 witnessed a notable victory for pharma-crafted patient advocacy. That year, Sprout Pharmaceuticals resubmitted flibanserin with the commercial named Adi to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, FDA, for market approval. This was their third attempt through the process for flibanserin, intended to treat female sexual dysfunction. Despite the fact that the FDA's advisory committee had originally voted 11 to 0 against the application, <laughs> and despite the fact that the FDA had concerns about the, both the efficacy and safety data supporting the application, the agency approved the drug on this third try. Within two days, the larger company, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, snapped up Little Sprout and the drug for one billion US dollars. The submitted trials showed that women on flibanserin had only 0.5 more satisfying sexual events per month than women on the placebo. Because the trials excluded women with even mild depression and anxiety, the FDA wasn't convinced that the safety data was adequate. In fact, women on the drug had high levels of sleepiness and sedation, had higher levels of sleepiness and sedation than had women on the placebo, and drinking alcohol while on flibanserin was connected to dangerous drops in blood pressure. The difference between FDA's, the, the FDA's first and last decision on flibanserin was almost entirely due to Sprout's aggressive public relations campaign. Quote, even the score. Even the score put the blame for the lack of female sexual dysfunction drugs on sexism and put, the, and put pressure on the FDA to approve flibanserin as a matter of women's equality. One of the central designers of the campaign knew her target. Audrey Shepard had joined Sprout shortly after having served as the head of the Office of Women's Health at the FDA. The campaign involved an extensive online presence on Twitter, Facebook, and other platforms, including involving such things as parodies of Viagra ads. What the fuck, asks a woman in one such ad, are we really so far behind we don't think women have the right to sexual desire? Yet again, we come second. 
The campaign also gathered a number of important partners, including the National Organization for Women, the Black Women's Health Imperative, and many other national women's organizations in the US. For the National Consumers League, ADE was, quote, the biggest breakthrough for women's sexual health since the pill, and other organizations made similarly expansive statements. When the FDA held public hearings on the drug, scores of women showed up to make the case for this pink Viagra. Many were carrying, quote, carrying gift bags matching scarves and large buttons with even the, the, even the score campaign slogan, a not so subtle sign of their having been recruited and bussed in by the company. Indeed, disclosures showed that the expenses of many of the women had been paid by Sprout directly or through an intermediary, Veritas Meeting Solutions. A number of them shared a urologist, Erwin Goldstein, a Sprout-connected key opinion leader who had recruited them for the FDA meeting. As reported by <coughs> Judy Siegel, a scholar in the rhetoric of science who attended the meeting, some speakers appeared to be ventriloquized by Sprout. <laughs> Says one, quote, I think the thing that makes me most angry and most disappointed is that if I went to my doctor and I was a man and I said these things, they would be able to write me a prescription with a, in a couple of minutes for a drug that is insurance covered and FDA approved. Moreover, most of the, uh, most of the testimony the FDA would hear came from married women who had no interest in sex with their husbands and felt themselves to have a biological disease that was, moreover, threatening their marriages. Eight women testified, six of them told deeply personal stories that ended with an emotional call for drugs. The company had, defected, had, had developed effective patient advocates. Despite its eventual success at the FDA and for the owners of Sprout, ADE has not been a sales success so far, with some insurer, insurers declining to cover it. This may be because an expensive, it's an expensive pill taken daily, requires its users to abstain from drinking alcohol, and offers only modest rewards. Where, asked commentators from the organization Farmed Out, are the crowds of women with low libido clamoring for Addy? They never existed, as, except in the PR firm's fantasy. But that PR firm's fantasy was rich enough to get the drug past a key gatekeeper. Thanks. <laughs> Is it probably or more mingling? There's more food and wine, so I think that that's probably most what's. I have a timely question for you. Big pharma doing this. Are we going to see big cannabis? Big cannabis doing the same thing, selling its edibles and you know CBDs and. So, so a lot of the story that I have to tell is is indeed applicable to big cannabis. I think that we'll see that. Um, it's big food is already there, but then then there are other industries that do that do similar kinds of things. Industries where it's it's where it's, it's the data is complex, and having a systematic enough um, sort of. A systematic and enough machinery around the data can help to get the sort of the right sorts of messages out, the right the right narratives in sort of playing up some things rather than others. And so it also applies to the, the mining industry and various other various other industries that deal in complexities. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think <laughs> cannabis is next. Yeah. Um, sure. 
<laughs> they do TV ads for this too, did you say? Oh, for the ID? Um, uh, there were not uh, TV ads uh, at before the drug was approved. There have been TV ads since the drug was approved. And incidentally, Valiant that bought Sprout became a Canadian company very promptly around that time. So, so this is a Canadian, a partly Canadian story. But um, the drug, the drug, they, since they didn't manage to figure out how the, to make the drugs succeed, um, they actually sold it back at a heavily discounted price to Sprout. Um, and Sprout is going to uh, is going to make another effort at the, the, at the drug. <laughs> yeah. So, because um, I've noticed, of course, with the ads that you have these happy people, you know, taking a drug, and then the voice behind is all the horrible things that can happen. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, was that a law passed that they have to put those side effects in oh, the yeah. ads? Yeah. Because that didn't used to be, of course, with cigarettes and whatever. Um, I don't know when that started happening. So direct-to-consumer advertising in the U.S. started becoming commonplace in the early 1990s. Um, it, you know, they're, they're actually interesting. I mean, they're inter interesting uh, sort of public policy and other kinds of stories to be told. Um, these companies depend heavily on regulation, and actually regulation makes them work. They need entities like the FDA to tell to to establish what can be sold and what cannot be, what can be marketed and what can be marketed, how it can be marketed, what sorts of claims can be made, what sorts of claims cannot be made. And until the U.S. government essentially announced that it would uh, that it would allow direct-to-consumer advertising that would combine a list of symptoms and a drug in the same ad. Until that happened, the, the companies were mostly low, they were too nervous to actually try the advertising. So it's the regulation that allows that to happen. And then of course they, they pick up on that and they, they use it to, to full advantage. It does seem not very important, you know, uh, what they're solving when you take the drug. So I have another question to the names of, you know, some of them are hysterical. I can't <laughs> spell them, let alone pronounce them. How do they come up with They seem to be such silly names. I'm sure. I don't. I, no, it isn't in my book. I, I don't know, but I'm sure that there that there's focus group yeah, work on, on the names. I, I you know, I'm, I'm Everyone very remembers trade names. Yeah, the trade Not names. The names. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably a challenge to find a name that's not already taken. <laughs> <laughs> so, can I ask you a question? Um, I haven't read your book yet, but to what degree did your research um, look at the artificial construction of diseases for which medication is then invented <laughs> as a remedy? Right. So, um, there's there is no um, branch of a pharmaceutical company that is in charge of constructing diseases. Um, but when they go into an area, they certainly will imagine 
they, they will imagine either how, uh, the construction of the disease or the enlargement of the, uh, the massive enlargement of the disease category. Um, and so they will, they will see opportunities, um, sort of see opportunities to sh even to shift, um, often to shift patients from one disease category to another disease category. So in the, um, in the late 1990s, for example, it became um, commercially important to shift people from the depression diagnosis to the, bi the bipolar diagnosis, and that was, that was a commercially important sh switch. Um, so there, there are things that happen around that sort of that sort of work, and so I, I, and I think that is part of what I want to talk about in the book. It's a small part, of, partly because I don't didn't hear people talking about it in sort of open terms at these conferences that I would go to. So it's it's a bit of an under you know underlying story. How much do you think the pharmaceutical industry benefits from? the sort of sheer amount of information thrown at physicians? Oh, I think it's, it's benefits enormously. I mean, it is, in, it is producing that information, mm -hmm. a large, large chunk of that information for physicians. And so it's, I mean, of course it's competing, you know, the industry, the companies are competing among each other mm -hmm. for your attention. Yeah. Um, I, I just mean because I know you, you, f you focus on how they're really trying to sell to doctors because they're like the gatekeeper mm -hmm. for the script. And I feel like the having physicians wanting to find something simple that if you just make the most attractive kind of claim, that's going to make it easy for the physician to choose your whatever you're selling. Mm -hmm. kind of thing, versus there's a lot of sort of noise to have to try to sift through. Mm-hmm. Um. So maybe I'll throw it back at you. Um, is it kind of convenient if there's all this noise and somebody does, you know, and somebody, a sales representative comes along and says, the important thing to know is that this is the whatever. This yeah, is the, this is the, this this is is the, the drug for gram, gram negative, you know, yeah, et cetera. So it's, you know, just to tell you what's what's the important thing here to recognize. Usually with like a really nice graph, so it's all very simple. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah. hmm. You mentioned regulations that sort of protect us, I suppose. But there's a movement now to uh, soften the regulations, at least in the states. Are they regulations? Are they the same from country to country? Do you know? Well, drugs sell over the border. So, overall, <coughs> the picture is very similar across uh, sort of wealthy countries. So there's, it, there's, there's been a movement to harmonize regulations between Japan, Europe, North America. Um, so overall, the picture is similar. There are, of course, lots of local regulations about uh, what can be said on advertisements. So what, you know, can, Canada does not allow the same breadth of direct-to-consumer advertisements <coughs> that the United States does. Um, there are local regulations about um, about the the kinds of campaigns, the kinds of gra ground campaigns that can happen, where key opinion leaders will be, are can or cannot go into doctors' offices to talk um, to talk about 
the latest little bit of research or something like that. So there are local regulations around around some of these issues, but overall the, the story is one of similarity. Um, and overall, the companies are are the companies often individually push for softening regulations, but then profit from the entrenchment of regulations. That is, the, the industry as a whole profits from more regulation rather than less. Why is that? <coughs> um, it's because, as I was saying, that there's a sense in which if, if Health Canada approves a product for sale, um, approves a product for marketing, then that is even though Health Canada does not want to say that that's a stamp of approval, it effectively is one and allows the companies to charge, the company to charge more for the product than they might have in an earlier era where we didn't have that kind of regulation, right? So if we go back 80 years, let's say, we have, there was much, 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 much looser regulation around the marketing of, of drugs, and there was not, nowhere near the possibility of profit margins that, that current companies can see. You would think if they loosened the regulations so they didn't scare people, you know, so much that more people might try the drug. Oh, they would like that, yes. So, but <laughs> the, the, the companies are always pushing individually to loosen the regulations, but then the industry, as I say, the industry as a whole benefits from from a highly regulated environment. Yeah, yeah uh, just familiar with the book tonight. Um, hadn't read it. Just wondering, what sort of time frame are you covering? Is this the last 10 years or the last 20 years, or what kind of an era are we looking at here? I would say the last 20 years, uh, sometimes stretching back to 30 years, but uh, but mostly the past 20 years. So it's, so the the structures of marketing that I'm talking about were mostly in place by the 90s, um, and so, so it, that's so that's that's yeah that's the the era that I'm that, that I'm talking about. Th before the 90s, things. You know, different different elements of what I'm of, of my story would not have been true. Yeah. And it's become easier with all the online um, platforms and methods that are available now to actually twist the story to what they want it to be in furtherance of the purpose. Is that uh, a rational a conclusion then, or just because we have all these things that we didn't have that 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So. <coughs> It's become misused in a lot of ways, as we know, right, with elections and so forth. But this is another insidious uh, sort of a non-intended consequence of the inventors. Right. So the companies are still scared to to do a lot of a lot of advertising using social media. They're they're actually frightened of social media, and the reason they're frightened is because of this of this regulation problem. That especially in the U.S. the the um, the penalties for being afoul of marketing regulations are very, very high. Not so much in Canada. In Canada, we we let them go with a, a small slap on the on the wrist. But um, but in the U.S., the penalties can be very, very high. But there aren't but there aren't actual regulations around social the use of social media to to market drugs yet. So the drug the companies that are 
trying it are actually, re they see themselves as real pioneers. They're, they're sort of pushing the envelope, willing, willing to take the risk that they might get, they might receive fines in the hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, quite possibly, um, if, if it gets deemed that they're doing something inappropriate. So there's a lot of nervousness around social media. At the same time, there is a fair amount of use of it um, in ways that seem safe. We're at a bit of a crux point then now because Congress has started to take interest in companies like Facebook mm -hmm. to a much greater extent than they ever had. So this might be, you know, fifth generation examination of what they're wanting to, to look at. But maybe it gets there eventually and they start thinking about it, right? The, the trucks that are being played upon them. Right. Thank you. Thank you. All right, as I hope. Um, so you were talking about fear and frightening from the point of view of the drug companies, but what about you as the writer? Did did you have to be really courageous <laughs> and put it out there? And now are you worried that the drug companies might try to are they going to come after <laughs> your book? Slip something in your drink. I've been scared at various different times in this research and in, in the research. So when I first started, I really didn't know what the conferences I would be going to would be like, um, and I was I was nervous about about just sort of being present there and just wondering what was, what the situation was going to be. I quickly learned though that the conferences one of the things that they're trying to do at these conferences is, is network. That's actually probably the most important thing that they're trying to do among each other. And so they would come up to me at the coffee line or some, something like that, and they'd say, what's an academic like you doing at this conference? <laughs> and I would start explaining about my field of science and technology studies and how we were interested in knowledge management and the, you know, the movement of knowledge. And their eyes would glaze over <laughs> instantly because they knew that I was going to be absolutely no use to them. <laughs> so, so I became a fly on the wall uh, in, in that respect. As for the, the, I, I did think that somebody was going to punch me once, but that was that was a, <laughs> sort of a particular situation. Um, somewhat, somewhat hot-headed, hot-headed person who thought that I was I was insulting him in uh, in my publications. But anyway, the um, I'm not so worried about the industry or the companies coming after me as a result of publication of the book. In part, I, it's sort of an interesting thing about the, how academics work, but we, um, sh we shield our sources very well. Um, we're actually required to for ethical reasons. And the flip side of that is that I don't tell stories about particular I, I, all the people are given code names if you if you read the book the that I've, I've got an elaborate system of codes <laughs> for for all the people who I heard talking and I, and I only I only report on conversations from the podiums uh, sometimes question and answers not whole not sort of hallway conversations but um, so official official talk. Um, so they're yeah. So they're they're all coded, and um, so they don't have reason to sue me. Their employers don't have reason to sue me because nobody can exactly be 
identified, at least not from the outside. Uh, maybe somebody might recognize, oh, that was me, I said that. <laughs> but, uh, but by I'm and not large. Pay attention to it. <laughs> yeah. So, so I'm not too worried. Yeah. Is there any um, noticeable difference between how um, the pharmaceutical industry controls information between a privately funded healthcare system and a, a publicly funded one like Canada? Yeah. Between the two, I haven't seen any difference. I think that the same the the structures the structures apply similarly. Um, and so in, in all these cases, uh, you know, we, in any system, we have, to be, we have to be interested in questions about who has the power to shape the information that we're receiving and to decide which, which information we're receiving. So we all get a lot of information, but it's impossible to, to conclude whether you should be taking the drug or not, right? Because you get what it's for, and then you get four or five or six pages of all the various possibilities that could happen as a result of taking that drug. If They're covering their ass all the time. If the company does its job well, everywhere you turn, you should be getting the same story. You see, you know, you can go to your doctor, you can read it in the newspaper, you can hear what the patient advocates have to say, and so on and so forth. The companies are doing their jobs really, really well. I don't want to claim that they always do their jobs perfectly. Um, that would be too Orwellian a story. Um, but they put in, invest enough resources that, that sometimes you see actually that, that working fairly well. So that everywhere you turn, it's the same story. You were fine with the companies until they learned your middle name was Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, SSS, right? <laughs> Thank you very much. Again, I draw your attention to extra food and lying around. I like your hat, by the way. Oh, thank you. And a little piece there I didn't cut out at the very end, but that's all right. Uh, you just heard... Uh, at a, in, as begun uh, well into the first hour uh, from an October 16th uh, launch again held at Novel Idea Bookstore. Uh, it was a talk and question and answer conducted by uh, Sergio Sismondo as he launched his new book, Ghost Managed Medicine. And uh, I would like to thank you for having tuned into the first hour of the show today. And just as a heads up, that each hour of every show, uh, today's as well, will be uploaded to my blog space for it shortly after I get home. And uh, you can find it at Finding a Voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. And so now, I guess a little bit more official uh, welcome uh, now into this second hour of today's show. It's now 5.07, and you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce. I'm here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock. 
And we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And coming up uh, for the remainder of the show, uh, one more launch I'm going to feature here, uh, two readings in it, uh, from a November 10th uh, launch event held again at Novel Idea Bookstore. You'll hear readings by Paul Carlucci uh, with his book, The High Rise in Fort Fierce, and Ian Weir with his The Death and Life of Struther Purcell. And uh, I will have... uh, a lot of time, and I kind of need it actually today at the end of these readings to go over. There are a number of uh, calls for submissions very soon to expire, and uh, there are a lot of them. So I want to try to get into those. I've had to neglect them the last uh, couple of weeks just because there wasn't time. And also, uh, uh, there are some upcoming events that I want to cover as well. So, But the usual hourly announcement, occasionally some poetry, spoken word, or music uh, played on this show may contain strong language, but it's all played in its entirety with content unedited to honor the creative integrity of both the author and the piece. So up first, again, from a November 10th launch event held at Novel Idea Bookstore. Up first here is Paul Carlucci, uh, reading from and launching his book, The High Rise in Fort Fierce. Okay, hello. Hello. How are you guys? We are fine. Good. Um... So, my book is called The High Rise in Fort Pierce. It's my, my third. It's a story collection. They're all linked together. Uh, I wrote it when I lived in a town called Hay River, which had, uh, which had a high rise, and it's in the Northwest Territories. And uh, this building was, was uh, maybe outside of Yellowknife anyway, but I think maybe the tallest building in the Northwest Territories, including those that are in Yellowknife, and it was uh, a bit of a, a bit of a bit of a social kind of disaster. So so y- y- you would uh, be going about your business in, in Hay River, and if you went by the high rise, which was right downtown, you'd, you'd for sure see something debauched or something kind of sad or or something like that. So I just looked at it a lot. I worked at a dog pound while I lived there, and I had split shifts. I'd go in the morning to take care of the dogs and walk them and feed them and stuff, and go home for a few hours and go back in the afternoon. So in, in that little gap, I, I, I wrote this. So I'm not going to... I'm going to read from the back of it, but basically the way it's set up is the first story is a, is, is a titular, so it would describe the life of the building from its from its beginning in, in the Cold War to when it was built, and then uh, move through three generations of landlords, and the, uh, the landlord, Norman, who's... Uh, Who's the third and final uh, of his of his lineage? Is the guy who oversees most of these tenants who make up the other stories. So I'll read from near the back of the book, and it's the story is called "Florida Is a Beach Real Soon," and we'll switch points of view from a father and a son in their journal entries. <coughs> so, <coughs> Josh's journal. In the photo, she was wearing a blue sundress covered in white flowers. And it was caught in the wind as she strolled down to down the shore and looked over her shoulder, oily skin flashing in the sun, footprints in the wet sand. Behind her, a huge expanse of bright blue ocean, drooling white caps, the streaky specks of birds twisting through the air. 
She added some text to the bottom of the frame, big red letters, and they spelled the words, see you, see you real soon, right? She sent it repeatedly, and each time I got it, I wrote back and promised to get there the second I could, by which I was serious, but my soon wasn't like most people's. I had Dane to look after. I wasn't sure how long that would take, because I had to do it myself, which was fine. His mom was the worst, but the point is my soon was different from the average soon. I always told this to Suzanne, and she always wrote me back and said, I know that, silly, which was the best, especially first thing in the morning with a cup of coffee steaming on the table next to my elbow. Suzanne lived in Florida. She was a divorcee and a hairdresser and an outfielder in her softball league. One of the first stories she ever told me was about her mother's funeral, but not a weepy one, like the way some people show their scabs and purse their lips and welcome whatever watery, obligated version of love they get in return. Not Suzanne. Her mother didn't have insurance and the funeral was expensive, so she took a second job delousing school children and then she got lice too. So she kept a couple of them in a jar and when they died, she gave them a little funeral and it was the most affordable loss she's ever experienced. I've been writing to Suzanne for just a bit longer than I own my own computer. It took a while for me to get it together after Dane's mom left, like years. But finally, my buddy Lewis sat, down, sat me down in his trailer, turned on his computer, and got me to join this dating site, which was sort of a joke, because there were only a few thousand people in Fort Ferris. He didn't count the reserve across the river. And all the ones smart enough to have computers were also smart enough to wear wedding rings. So broaden your search, my son, said Lewis from the couch, a calloused hand on his belly and a smile behind his thick blonde beard. Suzanne was the first and only person to answer one of my yellow flirty winks, which was a smiley face with sunglasses and cool eyebrows. <laughs> she sent me this little picture of an umbrella and another one next to it of a margarita. I sent her a diving board. We started to chat a little bit every day, but hanging out at Lewis's while he smoked dope and read dirt bike magazines wasn't especially conducive to that, so I decided to buy my own computer. After two years of correspondence, it still took me forever to type a simple message, which was okay, because there was a lot of time up there in the fort. I'd float my fingers over the keyboard and search out this or that a letter. I'd jab and poke. I told her all about Dane. I told her about the shootings on 6 and how the thundercracks woke me up from, woke me up from a nap, and Dane was standing in the entrance to the living room, pale face and 15, and pointing at the ceiling and mashing his jaw, but no words. After a few seconds of that, he shook his head and walked off the door to his room clicking shut behind him. He was a weird kid like that, sometimes fragile, sometimes destructive, like when he smashed his guitar. I bought it for his birthday some years back, the guitar brand new, and Dane hadn't taken a single lesson. He just came home drunk, locked himself in the room, and destroyed it. My own guitar was chipped and warped and scratched and battered. The strings were caked in a thickness of dead skin and kept it by the computer. I like to pick it up, strum a few chords, and wait for Suzanne to get back to me with that picture of some sunny future on a beach down south. So now we're into Dane's journal. Dane's journal. Donnie had another black eye, his third since summer started. One of them was me, because we were shoving around down by the river, play boxing, and I slipped in the mud while throwing a jab. Paf. That was an accident. I would never punch Donnie on purpose. We've been friends since we were little, when my mom and his mom used to hang out on Thursdays and play cards and smoke cigarettes and drink whiskey, which back then we sampled and winced and gagged. We got a little older and started hitting up at least twice a week, because actually, it was fucking awesome. We were 15 that summer of Donnie's black eyes, but when we first decided to get serious about whiskey, we were 11, and we needed Donnie's older brother Mitchell to get us the bottle, which was a good plan, because the hot clerk at the liquor store used to babysit them. Plus, Mitchell had darkish hairs on his upper lip and swore he licked her pussy once when they were kids and Donnie was bedridden with the flu. 
Donnie said he didn't know about that last bit, but the babysitting part was true. And once he watched her pee because she left the bathroom door open a crack, so who knows how far Mitchell managed to get. But that wasn't the important. That wasn't important right then, because Mitchell could buy whiskey, but only if we gave him ten bucks for his time plus the cost of the bottle. We didn't have any money, and we didn't have any jobs, so we spent a week walking in and out of the drugstore, shoving magazines down our pants and CDs and razors and shit like that. And we biked to the high school at lunch and sold the stuff to the older kids, except none of them wanted the razors. So we hung out in the lobby of the high-rise, and we were careful who we asked, but eventually we sold them to this loser with a three-legged dog. We made $40, more than enough, so we bought some smokes and chips, too. Once we had the booze, I choked up the nerve to ask Amy along, which Donnie didn't really like, because despite what he said about his babysitter pissing, he was still afraid of tits, I could tell. But Amy and I had a history of sour cola keys to revisit, and I liked watching her spin in the parking lot, just twirling in the snow or clouds of pollen that blew through town every summer. She was there when we sold our razors, spinning like a carnival wheel, and even though she was a year older than me, I asked her to come hang out in the bush, because fuck Donnie, and she said she'd come meet us. So we snuck the bottle into the woods along the river. One time, when I was a kid, my dad took me to sleep in a cabin he shared with his friend Lewis, and down the bluff on the beachhead there was a dead moose with its belly bloated and its legs sticking straight out, like something was shoved up its ass. My dad said to stay away from it, because it might have died of anthrax, and when we got back to town he called some environmental cops to go torch it. So near that cabin, after about a kilometer of bushes and behind a mess of fallen trees, there was another cabin but way different, like all full of trash and broken glass and a tiny cot with a blackened mattress, walls all spray-painted with dicks and tits and a giant hole smashed into the roof, but not enough ventilation to air out the moldy stench and hordes of flies. That's where me and Donnie went to get ripped, and it was the weirdest day, not just because of what wound up happening, but also because of the forest fires down south were nuts that year, just nuts, and the whole town was washed out in smoke and ashes were falling out of the heavens like shit was burning up there too. Donnie wouldn't come inside at first. His fat cheeks were pale and he wouldn't say anything. Not until he cleared a space on one of the counters and lined up the chips and smokes and booze. And I asked him, what one do you want first? And real quiet he said, chips. How come you didn't bring your guitar? I still gotta learn to play it, dude. I twisted open the whiskey and pushed the bottle into his tiny hands. Let's party, Donosaurus. Get a rip on before Amy shows up. He gave the bottle a shifty look, squeezed his lips together and tossed back a glug. Except he wasn't actually drinking, I could tell, so I gave him a sharp poke in the side, where supposedly his brother had burned him with a clothes iron, but to me it always looked like an ugly birthmark. Donnie's mouth opened wide and the whiskey poured in and flew through his body like a punch in the face. I laughed and he blinked back tears and passed me the booze and I just opened my, th my throat and threw that shit back. Path. I don't remember when I went from acting one way to another, like the exact second I transformed, and I've never been able to freeze it, that wiggly little second, no matter how many times I go through it. But all I know is the whiskey was going down large, and I was frustrated waiting for Amy, and the next thing we were tearing the goddamn place apart. Like kicking the walls and hurling scraps of furniture into the ceiling, just really stopping the shit out of that fucking place, and I don't have a full memory of everything that happened. Not like this long string of little pearl-shaped moments all leading one right to the next. Instead, I have a choppy recall, as if the string's been cut to pieces, but whatever, because everything went in the same direction anyways. Which means I do remember when I threw the cot over and the mattress was wet, like this really ancient wet, and underneath we saw little bugs in a huge wooden box with bent over nails sticking out of the lid. And then suddenly we were charging through the bushes and there were ashes caught in the leaves of different trees and ashes in Donnie's black hair like ribbons of dandruff. 
We went back to the nicer cabin where I knew there was an axe, and I was roaring and slamming the blade into the box, just fucking pounding it, missing once and swinging the thing right between my legs, almost chopped off my shin, until finally I blown chunks and splinters off the top, and a whole bunch and a whole bunch of big yellow bones clattered out. The axe slipped through my fingers and thumped the floor. My mouth was dry. Next to me, Donnie's breathing was ragged because he knew it too. You didn't need to have seen them before because our bones knew exactly what they were looking at. It's like two mice meeting in the darkness under a cot for the first time ever, and they both know they're mice. No one has to tell them, and they can't explain it to each other. Then, at home, I locked my bedroom door, and over my head I held the axe, which I swung the thing into my desk. I said it was my guitar, not an axe, but I knew that all along. And I was glad to smash the stupid thing, suddenly so glad. And even though my dad hammered on the door for hours, even though he squeaked, squeaked and squeaked at me all night. I just lay in bed with the whole room spinning and one of my feet planted on the floor trying to stop it. In the kitchen the next morning he asked me why I'd done it and he looked silly, silly with his green bathrobe and home hardware coffee cup. But even still I felt bad when I saw his face hanging all soft and pathetic which only got worse when the cops rang the doorbell but then changed into something more sympathetic when they told him what happened. Me and Donnie found a box of human bones in the bush, and he called the cops to report it, and it turned out the bones probably belonged to a murdered person, or at least a person who got all chopped up after death, which news made my dad reach out and squeeze my shoulder and stroke the back of my head. It's a weird time right now, one cop said, and he took a picture out of his shirt pocket and showed it to my dad. A girl went missing last night too, eh? Ever seen her? My dad took the photo. Yeah, lives around here. Always dancing in the parking lot, right, Dane? So this cop peered over his mustache at my dad's face. He chucked me on the shoulder. Just another one of those pointless thing adults do when they want kids to feel better. Don't worry, bud. We'll find her. Town's just going through one of its fits. That's all. Forest fire doesn't help, eh? Later that night, Donnie called me to say sorry for telling the cops, but I wasn't mad because even though he was kind of a fat loser, Donnie was my friend. And when I told him about Amy, he let me cry and didn't make fun of me at all. I guess he was sweet like that, which is why I got pissed that time when assholes fucked up his face. So I'll just pass through a little bit, and then I'll read the last little section of this. <clears throat> so this is the dad again. All of which brings me here, to this thought I had while trying to fall asleep last night. Here's my thought. Let's say there's a plane crash, up in the mountains, middle of nowhere. Let's say the pilots have been stabbed or wounded, or maybe they're just sleeping, or maybe it's the plane malfunctioning. Let's say the weather ate the plane, spatted out broken. You imagine oxygen masks dangling from the ceiling, luggage bursting out at the cargo holds and thumping people in the chest, in the head. Turbulence, shrieking hydraulics, seatbelt lights dinging, no smoking signs. Kind of funny. There's a harrowed sounds from one passenger, a hysterical meltdown from another. Someone drops a baby, someone drops a fork. But let's say you know, as a group, that at least one of you will survive. Maybe more. Maybe two or six or twelve. Maybe everyone. Doesn't matter. Someone survives, walks away from the crash, hikes down the mountain or through the woods, smoke signals spotted by search and rescue, wrapped in blankets, interviewed by journalists, enveloped by family. There's solace in that for all the people who aren't going to make it. Solace in the notion of a survivor, in the knowledge, whether divined or intuited or only hoped for, and because of this knowledge, people behave just a little bit differently, sometimes a lot. Terror makes them gracious, not savage. It makes them gentle. There's so much to do before we hit the ground. So many people to take care of. But what if everyone assumes they're doomed to die, no survivors? What if the plane is breaking up and the smoky sky leaks through the cracks and there's a piercing screech in the wind? There's the promise of disintegration, of body parts scattered across hundreds of kilometers of wilderness and teddy bears and a debris field filmed from a helicopter, families weeping in nearby airports framed on the front page, last names later chiseled into a marble memorial. 
That would be so much worse the moment you realize no one's going to make it, everyone's going to die, because no survivors means the end of your world. Ugliness all the way down, fear in its resulting cruelty, until the wings slice the treetops and the cabin bursts into flames. No survivors is the end of everything. I wish I could have explained that to Dane somehow. wish I could have assured him of his survival, but I didn't. I tried to, but I didn't succeed. I've seen him seen him I haven't seen him in eight months now. He's in Edmonton in Juvenile Hall and he doesn't write me or return my calls. I get progress reports from the institution, but calling that is a joke because there's no progress. He gets in fights, he mounts silent protests, refuses to eat, refuses to move. The reports are delivered cold and clinical. <clears throat> but between the lines I detect hatred. They think Dane's a monster. They want their institution to devour my son. I guess I understand. All they know is he blew up a trailer. All they know is a senior lady wound up in the hospital lucky to be alive. I understand why they think what they think, but I won't buy in. Instead, I bought out. Thanks in great part to Suzanne, who put the money together. Almost split, but she's actually paying a bit more. So I'm going to drive to Edmonton. I'm going to board a plane. My child bag full of dirt bike magazines Lewis gave me for the trip. I'm going to bail on the winter. Catch me a slice of singeing hot beach. Suzanne right next to me, maybe with a strip of zinc on her nose. But first, I've got plans to stop by the hall and visit Dane. On his desk in his bedroom at home, the journal I got him is shut tight, the spine pristine, because he never bothered to use it or even open it, although maybe he was too busy. I pick it up, tap my fingers on the sharp corner of the cover, and slide it into a plastic bag. I don't know why, but he might want it now, because what else is there to do in a place like that? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you just heard uh, from a November 10th uh, launch event held at Novel Idea Bookstore, uh, Paul Carlucci reading from and launching his book, The High Rise in Fort Fierce. And uh, up next uh, from that same launch and reading event that evening, here is Ian Weir uh, reading from and launching his the Death and Life of Struther Purcell. Uh, and thank you very much for, for being here tonight. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks so much to Oscar and... Uh, Joanna. Uh, Joanna, thank you. Uh, a novel idea. Uh, it's my first time in, in Kingston, so I'm, I'm having a lovely time here. My dad, uh, my, my dad went to Queens many years ago, and it was the great disappointment of his life that none of his sons went to Queens. <laughs> so dad, <laughs> at least I'm in Kingston uh, tonight. <laughs> Um, the Death and Life of Strother Purcell uh, is a kind of revisionist western uh, crossed with a southern gothic revenge tragedy. Uh, I've always wanted to write a western, uh, and uh, I've never until now written one. Um, so this, this, is, this, is, this is my bucket list entry on, uh, on westerns. Um, I was the kid who hurried home after school to catch Roy Rogers on the television. Uh, and loved The Lone Ranger, and I've loved westerns ever since I can remember watching movies and watching TV and reading uh, western comic books and books. Um, by the time I was sort of in my mid to later teens, it had begun to dawn on me that although I continued loving westerns, and I still to this day love westerns, there's something insidious under the surface, and not just under the surface of a few westerns, but the form itself uh, there's something hardwired in to the form of the Western, which is politically reactionary. Uh, they are self-consciously creating a myth. Uh, the myth is something which would find great favor uh, with the National Rifle Association. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right? it's, it's, it's a very right-wing 
perception. It's a mythology which justifies uh, a subtler, male-dominated, violence-oriented, uh, gun-toting, uh, Puritan, uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, white uh, view of, uh, of the cosmos. Um, and they're tricky things because of that. But even as you're being swept along, very often, you're, you're aware of the fact that there's something unsettling in a Western. And I'm trying to do, uh, I've tried to do both with the death and life of Strother Purcell. I'm trying to you know, tell something which is a rollicking tale about the last lost gunslinger of the American frontier. But it's also very much as a novel about how myths are constructed and elided uh, and falsified, uh, which to me is, it becomes more and more pertinent in the, you know, the scary times we live in uh, when we're seeing the, basically we're seeing the weaponization of historical myth. Uh, by the Steve Bannons of the world uh, to, you know, to, to pursue a, a specific kind of agenda. So Strother Purcell, the, the novel, um, it begins with the discovery of a couple of fragments of, of a manuscript which purports to be the true life story of Strother Purcell. Uh, they come into possession of a minor academic uh, in a small University, and over the course of time, what we're getting is a piecing together of different uh, different primary sources, uh, telling uh, different you know, different angles of the story of Strother Purcell. Uh, all of the narratives are unreliable, and the editor who's knitting them all together never quite understands what it is he's knitting together. So it's very <laughs> much a novel which keeps spinning off into myth uh, as we go along. We know that I mean, the established facts, as it were, of Southern Purcell is that he was born in antebellum North Carolina. There was a terrible blood feud uh, with the Collard clans, sort of a, an early set of uh, Trump voters, um, who would, uh, which would define the rest of his life. Uh, a mortal enmity with his beloved half-brother. Uh, uh, it is believed that Strother pursued his half-brother into the mountains of British Columbia in the 1870s, in the winter of 1876, and they both perished there except they didn't, because Strother Purcell, you know, the remains, the ruins of Strother Purcell turn, uh, turn up um, 16 years later in San Francisco, where uh, one of the unreliable narrators uh, picks up the story. Uh, Barry Weaver, Barrington Weaver, is a, uh, is a, a failed author of dime novels, uh, and a, uh, a hack journalist, an alcoholic journalist who can't get a job in San Francisco. Um, he has... Uh, when he comes across Purcell, he convinces himself that writing Purcell's life story will be his ticket to redeem himself as a failed writer and make his fame and fortune and, 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 and make uh, Purcell's legend at the same time. In the meantime, before he knows that Purcell is alive and there, uh, he's trying to work, he's trying to make a, a contact with Wyatt Earp. Who, what, true story, Wyatt Earp was in San Francisco in 1892 trying to reinvent himself as a businessman. Uh, this was before <laughs> Wyatt Earp had begun, before he'd become famous. I uh, mean, he was known, but the myth of Wyatt Earp hadn't begun yet because his, his, uh, his wife, uh, his third wife, who wasn't actually his wife, but uh, uh, Sadie Marcus Earp, Josephine uh, Sadie Marcus Earp, uh, was sort of the first of the really great brand managers. She was really smart. She was assiduous in cultivating the myth of Wyatt Earp and shaping it uh, and shaping her own mythology and the of their relationship and all that came later, uh, but anyway, uh, that's that's the, uh, the you know those, those are the true life characters in the, in, in the novel. So I'll, I'll just read a, just a, a brief section from uh, the accounting of Barry Weaver, San Francisco, 1892. 
Wyatt Earp was the gunman I had in my sights. Oh, I had heard of Strother Purcell. Strother Purcell had been, from t had been from Tennessee or Carolina, one of those backwoods places where God only knows what deviltry transpires up yonder Smoky Mountain. There had been a blood feud after which Purcell achieved notoriety as a lawman in the Southwest. There had been a confrontation in New Mexico that led to his hunting down his own outlawed half-brother, a vengeance quest that led him 2,000 miles north into the frozen wastes of another country entirely, and made his name a byword for bloody-minded perseverance against all sense and reason. At the end of it, there had been a final showdown, but as far as I knew, it had left Purcell dead. As far as anyone knew, Purcell and the outlaw have brother too, but all of this had been some years in the past, and there's only so, so much a man can make of the frozen corpses of shot-up hillbillies, so to speak. What I didn't know, and had no reason to imagine, was that Strother Purcell might have, might have survived. This possibility would not occur until the night of April 26th. I was a journalist in those days and kept note of precise dates and details when two encounters took place, one with a crippled devil in a saloon and one with an old man in a reeking antechamber of perdition. Each of these was so unexpected and uncanny that looking back, I could only suppose that fate had brought them upon me. I don't suppose I used to believe in fate, at least not fate as those old Greeks understood it, fate with a capital F and blood in its eye, Fate fixed and immutable and fuck all you can do, with great cosmic wheels turning and those Christ almighty horrors shrieking you to your destruction, those hags, what were they called, with teeth and talons and hair streaming back, hell bent on vengeance and furies. That's what they were. Those old Greeks called them the furies. Well, I had no truck with that sort of thing. I still cherished, fool that I was, a young man's conviction that he could shape his own destiny. And I'd never laid eyes on a hag of retribution, not unless I counted my sainted ma, which I oughtn't to do, not really. It wouldn't be fair. <laughs> but I would encounter my first fury in that San Francisco spring of 1892 in the form of, run of a runaway child bride. I'd do so sooner than I could imagine, although I wouldn't recognize her for what she was. This understanding would only come later, when the disaster was already far advanced, the catastrophe that would consume us all in ways I could never have anticipated, and in the meantime, listen to me, rambling and maundering like an old drunk in a saloon, we were speaking of Wyatt Earp. He was the gunman I had my eye on, not Strother Purcell, and Wyatt was a different proposition. For starters, he was still alive, which can be useful in a hero, up to a point. <laughs> Even better, he was not yet Wyatt Earp. Not the Wyatt Earp you know anyway. Earp the Lion of Tombstone, the one who rears up into your mind's eye, steely of resolve and epic of mustache, emerging through the shroud of gun smoke with reedy tubercular Doc Holliday and all that multitude of doughty Earp brothers, Virgil and Morgan and whoever the other ones were, the ones whose names their own mother could hardly keep straight, whatever her name was. That Wyatt Earp would not exist for another 15 years. When W.B. Bat Masterson, his old comrade, Peer from Dodge City days, now reinvented as a newspaperman in New York City, sold a series of articles to Human Life magazine about famous gunfighters of the Western frontier and wrote about Wyatt Earp in the second one. Wyatt would take his own crack at inventing Wyatt Earp in 1896, putting his name to a series of ghost-written reminiscences in the San Francisco Examiner, but the hack who did the writing, one of Hearst the Boy Wonder's hand-picked crew, made a botch of the opportunity. Take my word, I read the dribble four years after having made my own approach to Earp, which brings us back to April of 1892. 
Your story needs to be told, I said to him, and I am the man to tell it. He eyed me down the side slope of that mustache. Uh. The hell are you? <laughs> Weaver, I said. Barry Weaver, the writer. <coughs> we were side by side at the trough in the gentleman's off the lobby of the Occidental Hotel, where Earp had come cantering to lunch with a consortium of property developers. The Occidental sprawled across one whole block of Montgomery Street, an establishment much too grand for the likes of Mrs. Weaver's boy, or the likes of Mrs. Earp's, if he just admitted. <laughs> this was one of Wyatt's endless efforts to ingratiate himself into the capitalist elite. I'd been tipped to it by a reliable source, and arrived just in time to catch him with his business in hand. Don't have time for writers, he said. This from a man who was reputed to have sat with the newspapers spread out at breakfast each morning in his tombstone days, reading aloud any mention of his name. He hefted John Peter in his palm. What kind of writer? A newspaper writer. I write for the newspaper. Yeah, which one? Books as well. Books. Novels. Another slant ways look, eyes narrowing. Those pale blue eyes destined to become so famous. He'd have been in his mid-forties at this point, fair hair shading to silver, but still a man in the prime of life, square-jawed and handsome and six-foot-one, and that mustache, Christ, Falcons could have perched on the handlebars <laughs> on either side. <laughs> Novels, he repeated. It was the tone of voice that holds a word between thumb and fingertip, as you'd hold the tail of a small dead rodent. <laughs> My wife reads novels time to time. Maybe she's read one of mine. Possible. <laughs> Don't know as I'd call it probable. I've written several. Wouldn't put it past you for a second. <laughs> Rising on tiptoes, he reeled himself back in. He wore a dove gray suit and tan shoes and a derby hat, which he adjusted in the mirror. After Tombstone, Erpert spent several years in San Diego, speculating in the property market until a sudden downturn wiped him out. Another man might have recalibrated his ambitions, having taken the hint that he was woefully out of his depth amongst, amongst financiers. A bully, a bully boy with an air of plausibility and a certain steadiness of nerve, who had reached the pinnacle of his abilities as a headcracker and faro dealer in the boom towns of the southwestern frontier, not Wyatt Earp. He picked himself up, and now here he was in the Bay Area, managing a racetrack in Inglewood and placing shrewd bets. He knew horse flesh and gambling, given that much, bent once again on reinventing himself as a man of business and winning the esteem of all those sleek-bellied Republicans. This was ever the defining feature of his character. That, plus being thick as two stout planks and an asshole. <laughs> One last try. Wyatt, if I may call you Mr. Earp, the thing of it is, you've got a story, and a story needs to be told. Tell it first, or else someone else will do it. And then that one becomes the truth of who you are. The gaze was narrow and impressively fixed. For a moment, I thought I'd gotten through. I'm Wyatt Earp, he said. That's who I am. And you? He hawked contemplatively, turned and gobbed, dead center in the sink. <laughs> you look like shit brung home on a stick. <laughs> and you just heard from a November 10th launch event held again at Novel Idea Bookstore 
Ian Weir, uh, reading from and launching his latest book, The Death and Life of Strother Purcell. Tell you what, let's do this, and I will be right back. Do you like to dance? Tune into The Hustle with DJ Bolt every Friday night between 11 p.m. and midnight. Where you'll hear all the newest dance, electronic, French touch, booty bass, ghetto, deep, and tech house remixes and more. Let The Hustle take you to midnight and beyond at 11 p.m. on 4 to the Floor Fridays. Only on CFRC 101.9 FM. The Youth Diversion Program is a charitable organization which has offered service to youth in the Kingston area since 1974. The goals of the organization are to allow youth to take responsibility for their behavior, to reduce the number of youth involved in the young offender system, to reduce the number of people victimized by youth in our community, and to involve the community in youth corrections. The Youth Diversion Program believes that all members of our community have the responsibility to provide all youth with the opportunity to develop and grow to their fullest potential. They work in partnership with the community to develop quality programs to assist youth to make positive changes in their lives and at the same time take responsibility for their actions. For further information, call 613-548-4535 or email info at youthdiversion.com. Monday. Yeah. When traffic's a nightmare. When the workplace is hectic. When your boss calls you in for a meeting. When nature is on your side. There's only one thing you can do. But no need to wake up the neighbors. Tune in every Monday night from 11 p.m. to midnight for Shed Progressions, where we play an hour of cool jazz to help you relax after a long day. Again, that's Shed Progressions every Monday night at 11 p.m. on CFRC 101.9 FM. We're not afraid to get a little funky. The Kingston Community House for Self-Reliance, widely known as 99 York, has for 30 years been providing a central, low-cost meeting space for groups that allow like-minded people to come together to learn from one another, to share resources and trade skills. The goal of this house is to act as an integral part of the neighborhood in which it is located. On a typical evening, an autism caregiver relief group will be at 99 York, together with a 12-step organization and a transgendered support group while a social justice and homeschooling group may be booked in the following day. The community house is also available for less official functions, such as barbecues, birthday and office parties, and other social gatherings. We are proud to also serve the Queen's community. For more information, visit 99 York Street in Kingston. Go to www.99york.org, email info at 99york.org, or call 613-542-1136. And you are listening to Finding a Voice here on CFRC 101.9 FM. 
We are located in Lower Carruthers Hall, Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario. My name is Bruce, here every Friday afternoon from 4 to 6 o'clock, and we do stream live online at www.cfrc.ca. And as you can tell, there's still quite a bit left in this hour. I might be able to sneak some music in at the very end uh, to take us into the next show. And I'll bring that all of that up in a minute, too. But uh, uh, there are a number of quickly, uh, well, I mean, there are just a lot of submissions uh, coming up, uh, expiring either at the end of this month or at some portion in January. So I do want to cover those. But what I might do is there are some upcoming events. uh, And uh, so I'm going to get through the first two weeks of uh, the events I'm aware of, uh, lit events, the first two weeks of uh, January. So hard to believe we're just about there. Anyway, what's going to happen on January 1st from 2 to 4 p.m. at uh, Memorial Hall in City Hall uh, is the Kingston Mayor's uh, New Year's Day levy. And uh, what that is, there's going to be, it's going to run from 2 to 4. Uh, there will be a sort of a get-together at 2 p.m., and the official ceremony starts at 3. Uh, there will be an opening uh, from the town crier. Also through that, there will be remarks uh, from the mayor, MP, and MPP. But I'm bringing it up because our brand new, uh, the new city, Kingston, uh, yeah, Kingston uh Kingston's new, let's just do it that way, Poet Laureate is Jason Hero, and he will be reading uh, his first official reading in that capacity, uh, I believe, uh, shortly after 3 p.m. So, again, that's going to be in Memorial Hall in City Hall. Uh, If you don't know where that is, you probably do, but it's 216 Ontario Street. And I'm bringing these two up as well because normally these would be happening next Monday night, but because or I'm sorry, next Tuesday night, but because that is uh, January the first, uh, the same day uh, as the event I just mentioned, uh, they have been moved the following week for various reasons. So. Uh, Coming up on Tuesday, January 8th, these are usually, again, first Tuesday night of the month readings, one here in Kingston called And the Journey Continues, monthly open mic reading, held at the Elm Cafe, will happen not this coming Tuesday night, but Tuesday, January 8th. The event runs from 7 to 9.30, doors open at 6.30. There's a... it's located at 303 Montreal Street, so only maybe about five, six blocks uh, north of Princess on Montreal. Uh, there is a Facebook event notice for it. Uh, if you just type in and the journey continues or the next and the journey continues, I think, it should uh, lead you to that page. And the other one is a second Tuesday night of the month series that happens in Tweed called The First Tuesday Muse. And theirs will happen at the Tweedsmere Tavern, as usual. And uh, again, January 8th from 7 to 9 p.m. And uh, 
they have a Facebook group page. So uh, you can find that there. Yeah, I'm sure if you just type in the first Tuesday Muse, it will, the search engine will lead you right there. There's one other event going on uh, the following night on Wednesday, January 9th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. Uh, this will be held at the Union Gallery in Stauffer Library, which is here on Queens Campus, the corner of University and Union. Uh, but... Uh, uh, it does require registration. It's going to be a collective zine-making workshop, so that sounds pretty cool. Uh, Michelle Button, uh, I believe uh, the, the group is called Small Potatoes, uh, and uh, it's a group of four, Michelle Bunton, Gabriel Ching, Ella Gonzalez, and Karina Magazzini. Uh, f- uh, will be gathered for a zine workshop uh, as they consider the theme of public feelings. So uh, there is a, I believe there, yeah, there is an event page for that as well. So uh, it's uh, the title of it is called Public Feelings. So if you type in the search bar, Collective Zine Making Workshop Public Feelings, that will take you there. And from that, there are uh, actually going to be the following week. There are going to be three, if I have time, but I don't know if I'll get that far. Uh, there are three book launches now coming up the following week. Again, at Novel Idea Bookstore. So, but what I want to do is concentrate on uh, calls for submissions because uh, if I counted right, uh, between the two that expire the end of this month and the ones expire in July, there are July. In January, there are something like 10 of them. So let's go ahead and jump into it. The first two are will expire uh, Monday night uh, on December 31st. Uh, one's a call for submissions for an anthology looking for poetic or um, poetry or pro- poetic prose. Uh, I'm actually editing this anthology, but what it is is uh, Melinda Cochran International had a mission to uh, it went out to adult writers, so anyone from 18 years and older uh, with uh, writing poetry that uh, towards a teen audience ages, so targeted towards a teen audience uh, in the age of 14 to 18 years old. And uh, uh, did this as she's a publisher and also a teacher because she felt like there were many youth uh, that uh, she was familiar with that simply couldn't uh, find uh, a connection in poetry at all, couldn't relate to it. So she had hoped that a more contemporary anthology uh, of adults uh, gearing work sort of towards that audience uh, that they might be able to bridge that gap, I guess. So again, deadline is uh, midnight, December 31st. There is a uh, Facebook event for that, uh, and uh, it's if you just type in... Uh, Call for submissions uh, might say anthology, but I think it just says call for submissions for poetry and poetic prose. Should take you right there. There is another one, uh, Big Pond Rumors. uh, comes out twice a year. 
Uh, so their deadline for the winter issue is coming up as well on December 31st. So Monday night, December 31st. So if you'd like to get in, uh, let's see if I've got a website for them. That might be, yeah, here we go. Check out uh, their, uh, check it out uh, online, www.big-pond-rumors.com. Everything will be there. It'll talk about uh, the fact that they're, uh, they publish twice a year, uh, a winter and a summer edition, and also that uh, the guidelines should be in there and that the winter edition is about to, calls for it, is about to expire. Coming up also this coming week, uh, calls for submissions for Storefront Fringe Festival. Uh, and I will, this is pretty short, so I will just read this. Uh, there is, uh, yeah, I've got a website for you too. Uh, that it says the 2019 Storefront Fringe Festival will run from July 19th to 27th in Kingston, has opened their call for submissions to perform in it. There are 13 60-minute open slots and four 60-minute kid slots. Uh, the link for the application form is www, can be found at, I should say, www.theaterkingston.com. Uh, the lottery draw from those entered will be held at the Alibi uh, at 293 Princess Street at 7 p.m. on January 8th. So, excuse me. Uh, I had to sneeze there. I didn't want to do that right in the mic. Uh, the deadline again coming up is January 4th. So Friday, January 4th at 6 p.m. It has to be in hand. So go to the website to know. So they have that in hand apparently. So it needs to be on their desk in some form or another. So there you go. I also have here, I think I've got time for one more. This one uh, does expire on January 10th. It's an international call for submissions. It's called a Disquiet. Uh, they're looking for fiction, poetry, nonfiction. Nonfiction. The 2019 Disquiet Prize, it says, is now open for submissions. Uh, and let's see if there's anything else. Uh, oh, uh, and uh, the grand prize winner will receive a full fellowship that includes airfan, uh, airfare, stipend, uh, tuition, and housing to the 2019 Disquiet International Program in Lisbon, Portugal. Runners-up and others uh, will be considered for financial aid. Uh, it needs to be unpublished work, and the full guidelines can be found at uh, Disquiet, okay, HTTP colon slash slash disquietinternational.org. Uh, would probably get you close enough, but if you sla use slash the dash program slash contests dash scholarships slash the dash disquiet dash prize, should take you right to the page. And that's all I'm going to have time for today. I do want to thank you for tuning in. Do remember that you can find both hours online at uh, finding a voice on cfrcfm.wordpress.com. And uh, hope you can stay tuned coming up uh, right after this song and an announcement. Uh, two hours of saltwater music with Rob Carnell. Here's Mezzy Star. Mm -hmm. 
This podcast is produced in collaboration with CFRC.ca in Kingston, Ontario. CFRC is located on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. Infrastructure support for the CFRC podcast project is provided by the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Science. For more information or to get involved in podcasting, visit podcasts.cfrc.ca.